Hey everybody and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian and Dan's here too. Hey Brian, how you doing? Doing all right. What do you got going on lately, Dan? Well, I just got my second Fauci ouchie. I'm all vaxxed. That means it's about a week and five days until I can go see a movie in theaters with comfort. That's awesome. Hate to do anything half vaxxed. <laughs> I haven't heard Fauci ouchie before yet, though, so I like that. I've got my second shot scheduled in a week. We started this podcast about six months into pandemic that kept us completely cloistered in our houses almost entirely, at least for me. And there is a horizon, I would say, in the distance. It's it's a couple weeks away till I'm free and then a bit more time until, you know, everything is maybe more open than it used to be, but we're going to do a full vacation this summer. I'm I'm starting to get a little excited, I gotta admit. Yeah, good to have things to look forward to. So the movies that we are discussing today are two heist films. It is the Now You See Me series, uh, consisting of 2013's Now You See Me and 2016's Now You See Me Too, which, according to Wikipedia at least... The director was pushing to call Now You Don't, but I guess he got overruled. I mean, it was it was there for him, right there. They didn't even have to think too much about it, but that's okay. I think that is everyone's reaction when they hear that there's a movie called Now You See Me Too and no reference to that. Although the first movie has a line that actually references that. Yeah, it's interesting. They don't say the thing. They never say... I don't think, at least, now you see me. They do, however, early on, find something that says now you don't. Right. So the first film is going to be the crux of our discussion today. And we'll dip our toes into two, just to talk about where the franchise has gone and where it might go. The reason that I chose to take a look at these films is because I remember back in the day I saw the trailer for Now You See Me, and it really intrigued me. It's hard to believe this was already eight years ago. In the trailer, this group of magicians is doing a trick, part of a stage show that they're doing in Las Vegas. Well, I think it's in Vegas. I guess, I think it's the the middle act of the story that this scene comes from, where I guess they're in uh, New Orleans, actually. But it's the one where they are, like, giving people money on their cell phones. Everybody's checking their bank accounts and their their balances are going up. That's right. That's the second of their three big shows that is a part of their whole heist plot here. And so everybody's, like, going crazy. Oh, I'm rich. And the FBI is freaking out because how are they doing this? And I was curious because also... There are a lot of big names and faces in this film. It's almost a Too Many Cooks level ensemble cast. Yeah, that the, it was the cast that really caught my eye when I first heard about this movie as it was getting ready to come out. Um, Eisenberg was hot off of... Well, I guess it was three years later that it actually debuted, but I was going to say hot off of his social network claim. 
And then you have a lot of other strong comic actors, kind of interestingly. Woody Harrelson, Dave Franco, I think of as as comic actors. And Isla Fisher, definitely. I've only seen her in comedies. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mix of who's who. It's like some big stars, some lesser stars, but it's it's people that you've seen places all of a sudden thrown into the mix here. So you've got James Franco's younger brother, Dave, who, of course, I recognize from having played Greg Sestero in The Disaster Artist based on the making of The Room by Tommy Wiseau, where James Franco plays Tommy Wiseau and his brother plays the hapless actor he roped into making the movie. Uh, I remember Isla Fisher from the subpar Netflix seasons of Arrested Development. For me, Dave Franco will always be Greg, the soccer player from Superbad. It's like a third of the way into the movie, maybe even less than that. There's a random scene where Jonah Hill storms out onto the soccer field to talk to Michael Sarah, and Dave Franco, who I think was a total unknown at the time, turns to them and says, we're, we're two goals behind. You got to play, man. And Michael Sarah says, Can you calm down, Greg? It's soccer. It's soccer. And Jonah Hill says, yeah, why don't you go piss your pants? And he says, that was like seven years ago, man, or something like that. So he's the pa- pants pissing soccer player in my mind for eternity. People never forget, Jonah Hill says. And it's true. You never did. <laughs> And Isla Fisher, I knew from Wedding Crashers primarily. She's one of the two sisters with whom the two protagonists, Owen Wilsons and Vince Vaughn, are trying to get with. Oh. Also cool to see Woody Harrelson and Jesse Eisenberg reprising their kind of bickering buddy relationship from Zombieland. Although Jesse Eisenberg is much more in his Mark Zuckerberg persona here than almost the Michael Sarah imitation he was doing in Zombieland. Yeah, I've come around quite a bit on Jesse Eisenberg. I feel like I always thought of him as the knockoff Michael Sarah, but I feel like I like him in just about everything that I've seen him in. Yeah, he's good at delivering the Sorkin-style quick, smart dialogue. Definitely. A few other faces. I mean, the cast list just goes on and on here. But one of the things that drew me in is it's got Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman in it pretty prominently. And, of course, they were paired sort of in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Oh, yeah. Interesting. And one of my favorite films that's going to get mentioned a lot today is The Prestige, also directed by Christopher Nolan. To me, the gold standard of magician movies. Michael Caine gets to deliver a lot of poignant, thoughtful narration in that movie. Um, Here, it's mostly Morgan Freeman, and you certainly cannot knock Morgan Freeman as a narrator. (laughs) No, definitely not. He could narrate anything, man. I'd listen to him narrate the phone book. Also prominent, Mark Ruffalo is here. He's playing an FBI agent, and he's running around trying to solve these bank heists partnered with an Interpol agent played by the French girl from Inglorious Bastards. We've just gone eight deep on the cast, and all of them are impressive people who, you know, you'd go to a movie to see by themselves. Yeah, and they generally all have things to do. This is kind of a busy film. A lot of things happen here. 
But so I, I saw this trailer in 2013 and I was intrigued. Certainly I wanted to check out a movie that had a few of these faces, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Eisenberg and Harrelson back together. But for whatever reason, I dragged my feet a little bit and then reviews started coming in that were mixed. Ultimately though, it did pretty well at the box office. It was like $75 million budget and it raked in like $350 million box office. So pretty good haul, especially for an original concept IP to have your first movie make that much. That's pretty good. I agree. Yeah. It was obviously enough to kick off a second and apparently they're, they're planning a third. I'd love for this to become the fast and furious series, but instead it's magicians doing heists. Yeah, so what had been your exposure to this film previously? Not too much. I'd seen the trailers and I was intrigued by the cast. But like you, I did not take the dive to go see it based on those those mixed reviews. I heard some people really liked it and I heard a lot of people didn't like it very much. And so I was like, I, I just never got around to doing it. So until this week, but I was glad for a chance. I do like a good heist movie. I feel like a heist movie is it's right up there in terms of movies. That's just so satisfying. Like everyone loves a good heist movie. Well, as for me, I like a good magician movie or (laughs) just the concept of magicians and their vibe and aesthetic is something I enjoy. It's a little bit spooktacular. Often there are top hats involved. Not here. This is more the, the David Blaine magician scene where they're kind of hip. I think I saw on the second one, at least, though, that um, David Copperfield had uh, executive producer credit or something. Oh, interesting. He's, like, consulting on the magic and stuff. Probably. Yeah, I like magicians, too, and magicians in movies are kind of fun because sometimes, and this movie dips its toes in it but doesn't really go all in on it, whereas the prestige much more does is you can like skirt the line between how much of it is a deception and how much of it is real magic. Right. And there's also the element of movie magic, things that couldn't actually be done in magic tricks in real life. So I was actually going to save this for my not so good things when we talked about it. Oh, me too. So maybe, (laughs) maybe we should save it. All right. <laughs> but I mean, I think if you go back to like the early days of film, you've got things called trick films, like the films specifically of George Melies, who did um, Journey to the Moon and stuff, where he had a background as a magician. And he really became enamored with the things that you could do, even with just in-camera editing, ways you could trick the eye by st- stitching together different shots Right. I I actually just watched with my my three-year-old daughter. I'm trying to get her into the art of cinema. I I watched with her a video series kind of introducing film and film history at a very low level. I think a lot of it still went over her head, but it was was still fun to watch this. It's part of the Crash Course series. They have a film history series. And they talked a lot about how some of these early cineasts made... um, Matt trick films and like how they started to discover that you could do more with movie film than just depict a single thing in real time for a short period of time. And Melies was definitely like one of those key guys. 
So like right around the time, the turn of the century, they were discovering, hey, you can put black tape over the lens and it will film one part, the part that's not covered. And then you invert the tape and then you film the exact same film strip again right through the camera. But because it's a different part, a different thing will be captured. And that's how you get stuff like The Big Swallow, which I sent to you recently from 1901, which makes it look like a person is eating a camera and and all sorts of fun little trick movies, I think you called them, from very early in cinema. Yeah, I'll also shout out Hugo. I think it was Martin Scorsese made that one. I want to watch that one sometime. That That's on my list of potential movies to pick for this because I've never seen it and I've been hearing a lot of good things about it recently. I was expecting it to be more about the little robot that he finds in the trailer. Uh, you might be let down if you're expecting that because what it turns out to be is a history lesson about George Melies. Interesting. But it sounds like that might be up your alley, so... I, I did like it overall. Um, Sasha Baron Cohen is in it, and he's he's funny. One more thing about magic that I like is I like that there's kind of mythical figures who kind of evolve almost into legends, even though they're basically modern people, and we know, quote-unquote know, that they were just illusionists. But I'm thinking of like Houdini, how he's like a, a folk legend, basically, for all the crazy things that he did. There's like a, like a spiritual level kind of reverence toward him. But I learned recently that he was actually an actor for a while. Did you know that Houdini was an actor? Oh, really? Yeah. From 1906 for a few years afterwards. And he starred in a couple of serials. I don't know. I almost like don't like the fact that he was a actor. I want him to be just be this kind of mythical emblematic figure of great illusion that we can't ever know exactly who he was or how he did it, etc. No, there's something mythical about him. One of the things I find interesting about Houdini and almost kind of disappointing is that he put a lot of effort into debunking, which we will see is something that comes up in this film. Now, debunking is when you reveal hoaxes and and point out charlatans and things. Specifically, Houdini went after spiritualism, which was big in his day. You know, like in the decades after the Civil War, America got really into the idea of ghosts and speaking with the dead through mediums and things like that. But Houdini, with his training as a magician, was able to expose all the trickery that was going on by these people conning grieving families and such. So, I mean, it's noble, but also... You know, when a magician's whole shtick is like, go on the stage and and say, behold, my powers. Then to turn around and say, oh, you believe in powers? What an idiot. It's like <laughs> a little disingenuous to me, I feel. But it's something that has a long history. I mean, Penn and Teller do the same thing. That a lot of their show is debunking things. I can see how if you are very talented, that you would have a disdain for people who just don't really have skill and just pretend to be supernatural. And that's like the essence of their quote unquote magic. That's fair. But like, if you read the correspondence between Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, they turned into kind of rivals because even though you'd think Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories would be like super into 
rationalism and reason. He was actually a big spiritualist. Oh, weird. And he was like, oh, Houdini is magic. Look at, he can walk through a wall. And <laughs> Houdini's like, dude, you're dumb. <laughs> Don't write me anymore. It's like... <laughs> So uh, that's an interesting story. That is not our story for today, though. We will uh, we will get into the plot of this film here. T- I just want to set the stage, if you will, for our shared interest in magicians. I, I guess one last thing is uh, I went to a yard sale a couple years ago, and somebody had a bunch of Magic Act posters for sale, and so I got a big stack of them. And a couple are signed by David Copperfield, so... Wow, good find. I don't know. Yeah, it's just... Somebody was a fan, and I am living vicariously. But I was curious. Now, here, now that I am in the seat of power, I have assigned the movie, and we've watched it, and we're going to finally now get around to sharing our thoughts. So, the movie starts out with a prologue sequence where we get introduced quickly to four different magicians who all seem to kind of be at different levels of fame and prominence at the moment when we jump into the story. Jesse Eisenberg is playing a character named Daniel Atlas, and he's a young, cocky magician. Really, to me, he just seemed to be playing Mark Zuckerberg again. He's very egotistical and speaks quickly and is confident that he's the smartest in the room wherever he goes. Yeah, that's an important line. The the scene, I think it's the very first scene of the movie, might have been my favorite. It's the scene where we meet him. Might have been my favorite single moment of the whole two movies. It's like a trick on the viewers as much as the actual uh, people who are supposedly the subject of the trick within the film. He flips through this deck of cards and says, look for a card and pick it. And then he flips through it again. And then he reveals, is this your card? And he lights up a building and it's a specific card. So the crazy thing about this is it's it's really precise and impressive, I guess, post-production or or something, because it's edited in such a way that you notice the seven of diamonds more. I watched it like three times to try and catch on you notice the seven of diamonds more than the other cards, but it's not so much that you know that you are seeing the seven of diamonds more than the other cards. Like it pulls off just right. The psychological trick of having that be the cards you notice without really calling attention to that fact. And so I was like, Whoa, when it happened to be the one that I had seen before I realized that maybe it's just there for like a frame longer or it's like clearer, sharper focus than the other cards. But that was pretty cool, I thought. Yeah, I was wondering how they did that, too. I'm glad that it worked on you as well. <laughs> I thought maybe it was like a whole deck of sevens. I didn't actually go back and watch it again because I rented it on YouTube and there was no jump back 10 seconds button. But yes, your eyes are drawn to the seven. And then the whole skyscraper, like all the windows turn out except the windows that make the icon of seven of diamonds. Then there is Merritt McKinney which is the Woody Harrelson role. And a couple of them at least have like areas of magic that they specialize in. And this guy's specialty is hypnotism and mentalism. So sort of mind reading. 
he like reads facial cues to get information out of people. And this has kind of been made fun of. I think of a bit on Family Guy where the mentalist says, does your name start with A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. And Peter says, P, P Peter, my name's Peter. Oh, is your name Peter? <laughs> there's There's some of that here. Although, honestly, I think they show hypnotism and mentalism better here than in the second movie. But we'll we'll talk about that soon. Yeah, the, <laughs> I did not like the depiction of hypnotism. Well, first of all, it seems super not real. Like, I don't think... I don't I haven't really dug into how quote-unquote real hypnotism is. But it just seemed like in this movie, it was a way for you to, like, have a character do a thing that they wouldn't do and not remember that they had done it. It kind of felt like cheating every time they pulled out. Oh, he was actually hypnotized. I mean, I guess it primes us for it with this opening scene that he can, he's basically got a superpower, can make people forget things or do whatever he wants them to do. But it felt very unrealistic and out of line with the more practical. I mean, obviously they're all kind of more powerful and skilled than real magicians would be. But this one was like, broke my suspension of disbelief. Yeah, I think that's fair. He's also shown to be kind of the most down on his luck. He makes a throwaway reference to having been betrayed by his brother in the past, that they had, like, worked together, and his brother ran off with his money. There's Henley Reeves, who is the Isla Fisher character. She's got the most, like, polished act here at the start. She's got already a fancy stage, and she's got the dive tank from the prestige basically the big water tank and wouldn't you know she she dives into it locked up in chains and she struggles to get out within the time limit and it almost looks like she's not going to get out so chalk that up as another prestige parallel right i thought of the prestige as well although this tank has got piranhas in it and they're shitty CGI piranhas. <laughs> and they set my teeth on edge in a way that did not abate for the entirety of the rest of the film. Like, I hated these CGI piranhas. Anytime there's an animal in a movie that really exists, it should not be CGI. That's my opinion. Like, if it's dinosaurs, okay. If it's dragons, it's okay. You could get fish in a tank. <laughs> that, I think that's fair. It just especially bugs me because these are magicians. So, yes, we are ready for our eyes to be deceived, but not in terms of, like, digital effects. We expect to see things happen practically. Something that the person on stage would actually have control of and not need to be edited through a camera. So there are several tricks in this movie that rely heavily on the digital post-production. And every time it happened, it drew me out. It's like the person, the character is not doing these things. I completely agree. That that really brought me out of the film too, because there's one fairly early that we're going to get to where it gives us like a location, a timestamp, and it tells us we're somewhere. You know how in films, they'll just write in text. Um, you know, you're in Houston, Texas or whatever. I think this one was Paris. And we subsequently learned that it was not Paris. And 
that's not magic in in universe magic that's just deceiving the viewer you're not telling you shouldn't be telling the viewer that it's paris you should let the viewer figure out where it actually is well that's an interesting case yeah we will talk about that the last member of these four magicians to be introduced is dave franco who plays a character named jack wilder and he's the youngest one when they all end up meeting up he kind of idolizes the zuckerberg what's his real name eisenberg the eisenberg character uh jack's skills are that he picks locks and we don't see it very much which i'm glad about but he can also do the thing where like it's supposed to be an impersonation but really he's just like dubbed by the person he's supposedly imitating which is another trick i'm never a fan of <laughs> it it looks completely unnatural like Junie from spy kids could do this and it worked okay in that because like there's a ton of goofy stuff in that movie and there's thumb people and things but here where they're supposed to be stage performers it it was unnatural all of these four performers after they get introduced they quickly come across these mysterious invitations in the form of tarot cards and each one has kind of got a tarot card that's like related to their personality. So Woody Harrelson is the hermit and Isla Fisher is the high priestess. But, you know, being magicians, they're captivated by this mysterious card that's just shown up. Like Jesse Eisenberg is in the middle of a hookup and throws the girl off of him onto the floor when he finds this secret card. That was a pretty big laugh for me. Yeah. Good to start a Jesse Eisenberg movie off with an awkward hookup. Because <laughs> it happens in Zombieland, too, where she turns into a zombie in the middle of everything. Uh, but they all are invited by these cards to convene at an apartment in New York. I guess most of them have not met or they, like, know of each other. Uh, Eisenberg and Isla Fisher previously worked together she was his lovely assistant and girlfriend at one point but they've since gone their separate ways now here they are all together having been summoned by an anonymous benefactor and they like activate a booby trap or something they like pour water on the floor and it runs into grooves and spells out a message and through this rube goldberg series of happenings they trigger a hologram to light up and this hologram is like a 3d map or a blueprint and the viewers don't really see what it's depicting but obviously it's highly technical and all the magicians are instantly wowed by it and they kind of all agree that they're going to follow this schematic that's unfolding before them even though they don't know who's giving them this information and these instructions, they're going to go ahead with it because obviously it's awesome magic and it's going to lead to something good for all of them. So we jump ahead a year and now they're all working together as a high profile act performing for sold out crowds in Vegas. And they go by the name The Four Horsemen. So this time jump really jarred me because I thought everything in the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes had primed us for basically 
And I, I also knew or suspected that it was along the lines of the heist genre. There's always, or usually a significant part of the heist movie is the people preparing for the heist. And so I was, especially because we kind of had been built up to know these specific characters. We were going to see how they interact, what their relationships were, etc. But then as soon as they like all get together, it immediately jumps to them performing the actual show. In the moment, it felt like we missed a significant portion of what I was expecting to see in this film. It feels like they could have started here if that's what they wanted to do. That's interesting, yeah. Like, start start here at the big show. And I mean, if they needed individual intros, it could have been like, and now, Danny Atlas. And, like, you get a little cutaway or something. Okay, I kind of like that rewrite. That's That makes sense to me because all the things you learn in those first 15 minutes don't really end up having all that much impact on the ultimate proceedings. They're basically all just kind of magicians together by the time the show actually starts with like one or two exceptions. Yeah. It would trim some fat. And then if they could either start working for the mysterious big figure after the show or like after the show, they go and get their missive from him. And we like get the sense that something bigger is going on. Yeah. Something like that. But here in this show, they explain that they're now being bankrolled by a wealthy insurance magnate named Arthur Tressler, who is Michael Caine. And this is this is another one that surprised me because obviously we're led to believe that there's some mysterious person pulling the strings. And then when we cut to them introducing Michael Caine, I thought that we were to believe, and maybe this was in fact the intent, that he is the head honcho organizing everything. But it felt like a underwhelming reveal of who this organizer was, you know? Yeah, so kind of this whole movie, the big mystery they want you to be wondering about is who is the puppet master? Who's the person behind the curtain? They start calling this person the fifth horseman. And yeah, early on, pretty high chance it seems that it's Michael Caine. Like they rub your face in Michael Caine. <laughs> During this show, we see a series of magic tricks. Obviously, it's a magic show. And some of these incorporate some foreshadowing that's going to be important later. But it all builds up to the end of this performance when they pull someone out of the audience. And they ask this guy, who turns out to be a Frenchman, to picture his bank in his head. And they strap a teleportation helmet, they say onto this guy that's also got a video camera so they say picture your bank and voip they warp him to a bank vault in paris and this is where we get you know the lower third that dan was talking about paris france and suddenly he's broadcasting from inside the parisian bank vault and there's just this big old stack of money lying on the floor I, I don't really know if this is what the inside of a bank vault looks like, if they just got all the money laid out there on a pallet. Perhaps. It's like Breaking Bad. It's like Walt's storage unit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am probably certain that this is not how money is stored at banks, but it's iconic for, for movies for stealing the money from the bank. You, you open the vault door and boom, there's the big pile of greenbacks. Or in this case, it's euros, so it's like goofy colors, but... 
The Frenchman is instructed to place a four-horseman calling card on the ground. And then, somehow, the four horsemen turn on a vacuum. And it sucks all the money out of the vault. And then the guy warps back to the studio in Las Vegas. He pops back in. And all the money rains down on the audience. Simultaneously, we see real deal French police are at the real bank in France and happen to check into the vault and all the money is gone. Oh, and the calling card is there on the floor. So somehow this teleportation trick has really taken place. So there you go. Another prestige parallel is prominently featuring a teleportation trick. But of course... Now, this huge amount of money has disappeared. I guess it's been rained down on this Vegas audience. And so the FBI is involved. A uh, robbery has really taken place. And the French authorities, of course, are also on the case. Yeah, they're kind of like these the Robin Hood magicians here. It's a, they're stealing money from the big banks, the big bad guys, and shooting it out of vents so that you're... Your everyday person who happens to be attending their magic show can can get their hands on it. Back to the power of the people. Your everyday person who can afford a high-profile Vegas ticket. <laughs> but yes, this begins a recurring theme of sort of semi-topical social commentary. Like, you know, 2013, the Great Recession was like just in the rearview mirror. And so there is a lot of popular ire against banks. The horsemen, after this trick, get taken into custody by the FBI. The head agent investigating the case is a guy named Dylan Rhodes, who I'll probably just interchangeably call Mark Ruffalo, because that's who plays him. And he's partnered with a French Interpol agent. According to Wikipedia, her name is Alma May. Uh, I might just call her the girl from Inglorious Bastards. The the one who plays Shoshana, who <laughs> Christoph Waltz is chasing around. And they get interrogated here by the agents. The magicians are being questioned. And they're flippant and cocky. Mark Ruffalo is getting frustrated. This is where Eisenberg delivers his It helps to be the smartest person in the room line. I really liked this scene. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes from the first movie where you see them one step ahead. It's like a satisfying itch to scratch where the cops are trying to to rein them in, but they they figured it out. And you get a little bit from the different magicians at different times and they do stuff like they slip out of their handcuffs and like put put the handcuffs on someone else and put the key inside a Diet Coke that another agent has and stuff. This was a moment I had my a smile on my face. Yeah, this trick with the handcuffs where Jesse Eisenberg is, is handcuffed to the table and Mark Ruffalo like leans in and suddenly Jesse Eisenberg stands up and Mark Ruffalo is handcuffed to the table. That's another one that they use in the prestige. So I do enjoy seeing these things that call back to that film. What was weird to me here is that Mark Ruffalo lets them go, I guess, because they don't have evidence to charge them with anything. But was the money that rained down on the audience not evidence? 
that's <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, the you're right that the argument that Jesse Eisenberg gives for why they should be let go is if they're actually arrested for this, then this is the FBI acknowledging that magic is real and they really transported to Paris and stole the money. But I agree with you that that is not exactly true. Like you have stolen money and you might have done some sort of trick, but that doesn't mean you didn't steal the money, you know? Also, what's the American audience going to do with the Euros? <laughs> They're all going to have to form a line and go to the travel agency or whatever, somewhere that exchanges the money. That's a good point. The real winners are those exchange places that do like a 15% markup. But now, since they've been kind of stymied, the agents are looking at other venues to try to solve this case. And they start talking to a guy named Thaddeus Bradley, which is the Morgan Freeman character. Honestly, a pretty good name. I'm a fan of the name Thaddeus Bradley. I almost want to do a fantasy draft of the names because there's some really good names in this. I'm I'm a fan of Danny Atlas, although if you were to tell me Danny Atlas, I would not think of Jesse Eisenberg. I'd think of like a muscular Ryan Reynolds or something like that. Yeah, a workout guru. I like Merritt McKinley, too. But... Morgan Freeman's shtick in this movie is that he is a debunker and that he's had like television specials for decades where he exposes magicians' methods. So here is where I bring a personal anecdote, sort of personal, just talking about another thing I watched on TV. But do you remember, Dan, a figure from the 90s called the Masked Magician? Hmm. Not specifically. All right. So there was this guy who did, like, primetime TV specials. I don't know how many. Maybe, maybe like, five of them throughout the 90s. Uh, later 90s. Like, 97 onward or so. He would wear this mask that was, like, a luchador-style mask that covered his face up. And it, it was, like, striped. Almost like tiger stripes. And what the masked magician would do is he would do these popular magic tricks and then show how he did them. And supposedly he wore the mask because all the magicians wanted him dead. And he could never reveal his identity because here he was breaking the cardinal rule of magic by revealing the secrets. I liked these specials, uh, not to spoil too much, but more than anything that happened in this movie. Uh, I liked I liked his whole angle. And this captures a little bit of that spirit here. Uh, with what Morgan Freeman is doing. It's a good dynamic. I like the combative magic ruiner spoiler guy going up against head-to-head the magicians and each one trying to remain a step ahead of the other. And like we said, it's a tradition. It has a pedigree. I mean, even Houdini himself was a debunker. But we get in sort of quick summary as an aside that there was one magician who was particularly plagued by Bradley's debunking. And this was a guy named Lionel Shrike, who, because he was getting kind of egged on, had to keep attempting more and more dangerous feats until he tried one where he was locked in a safe and dropped in a river and had to escape and was unable to. So he died and drowned. Well, hold on. We assume he died and drowned, but didn't they say they never found the safe or the body? Okay, I was going to ask you this, 
because I think they did say, but the body was never found. So I'm glad. Okay, so this, listeners, is something that happens in the movie. I wasn't sure, so I didn't jot it down, because it makes very little sense to me that the body was not found. Because, what? (laughs) Like, how do you... I don't know. I guess it's mysterious because, like, maybe it was his plan all along to disappear. And so now, yes, now I guess we have another figure that, oh, maybe this is the fifth horseman. (laughs) Or maybe it's Morgan Freeman is the fifth horseman. What was your brain doing at this point, Dan? What were you thinking was going on? I was intentionally trying to not try and figure things out because when I get in the mode of trying to guess twists... I either am let down because I figured out the twist and it wasn't as surprising as it could have been, or I come up with what I think is a good twist that I think they're going to do, and then they do something that I don't like as much. So I was trying to clamp down that part of my brain and just go along with the ride because I knew the whole point of this movie was to be surprised at the end. I was doing a little bit of noodling here and there, but things are not quite coherent enough for you to really dig down too deep into the... What if it's this? What if it's that? Could it be this? Could it be that? Because things change really rapidly and it's never quite clear who knows what. Good. I I agree. The next show that the horsemen do is in New Orleans, which the last time I was in New Orleans was the trip I took with you in 2016. So kind of a fun little throwback there. That was a good trip. Yeah. It's always fun. New Orleans is one of those cities that I always like spending time in, in movies. But... The big trick in this show is the one that we saw in the trailer. The one where everybody's checking their phones and watching their bank accounts rise. Because what the magicians do is they bring out Arthur Tressler, Michael Caine, the guy that we might suspect at this point is their benefactor. I guess is publicly their benefactor because he gave them money to put on their shows or something, invested in them, sponsored them. But the twist, I guess, is that they take the money that they're giving out to all the people in the audience from his bank account. Like, they reveal that he's got $144 million, and then suddenly his total starts going down, and everybody else's totals start going up. And, like, that's the trick, so-called. Is this a magic trick? I think it's just theft. I don't know if this is a magic trick. I think they're just stealing from him. (laughs) I think they just hacked his account and are making transactions publicly. There's a moment in Arrested Development where Job goes to prison and then he gets out of prison because he gets stabbed and has to go to the hospital. And then he says, ta-da... And it's like this really, this moment that my wife and I quote to each other all the time. Whenever you do something that's, <laughs> you try to pitch his magic, but it's really not magic. Oh, wow, you did it. Good job. Super magical. Yeah. Man, now that you've thrown Job into the discussion, he might be my favorite fictional magician. <laughs> He's got a lot of good ones, yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of good moments. But where did the lighter fluid come from? That was going to be my next line, yeah. Dead dove do not eat, <laughs> which for, something for you, I, you might or might not recall this. We worked at the same warehouse for a while and 
when we would get stuff in, I would occasionally write the name of the thing and then do not eat after it as a reference to that. Oh, yeah. I That actually paid off hugely. It was a very successful prank because I found a box full of cockroaches. And just as in the show, it was labeled cockroaches do not eat. And I opened it up. And sure enough, it was a whole box full of cockroaches. And I, I had to think to myself, I don't know what I expected. I'm glad. So, And it was like months after the fact, so it, it worked. But a kind of funny, clever bit here is that during the course of this show, McKinney set up a hypnotist thing where he said, you know, he brought a bunch of people up on stage and he hypnotized them. And their trigger word is going to be whenever they hear someone say freeze, they're going to want to tackle that person. (laughs) So uh, they've just done this robbery on stage where they've defrauded Michael Caine and taken all his millions. And it turns out FBI agent Rhodes is in the audience and he leaps up to arrest them. And he says, freeze! Freeze! (laughs) And the audience all runs out of their seats and tackles him. So this was one bit that I I liked. They buried the lead, and then when the payoff came, I was surprised and delighted, and I thought it worked. That's pretty funny. I was out on any of the hypnosis stuff because I was too skeptical that it seemed real, but it was definitely a funny moment. And so the horsemen escape out the back door, and Michael Caine is like, He's got, like, an ankle chain holding him in place, being very furious. But I don't think this would work, them having just taken the money from Michael Caine, because, like, if your bank account suddenly notices a bunch of, like, fraudulent, suspicious purchases, you can have them freeze the account. And, I mean, he is an insurance mogul of all things he probably has some kind of insurance i would think i mean i'm not a financial whiz but does that make sense there are a lot of things in this movie that the more you think about them the less plausible they seem and i just hand waved this one away because he was funding the magicians so presumably there was some ability for the magicians to spend his money I don't think they would have like a direct line to his account or something, but I was just like, eh, he invested in them and now they're taking that money and, and spending it elsewhere. So, but I was also kind of confused because I hadn't quite caught on that we were searching for who the true benefactor of this all was that it wasn't in fact, Michael Caine. And at first I thought it was just like a deception to, everyone that Michael Caine was not actually getting money sold from. And I was like, where is it actually going with this? And then it took about a scene for me to realize, okay, they did actually steal from him. Like for real. Cause I thought it was going to be more of a magic trick, like something that we didn't know was happening was actually happening, but that was in fact what was happening. Yeah. Especially since like, this is the trick that we had all been waiting for. Having seen the trailer. Also, like Dan said, this is the moment where you can cross Michael Caine off the suspect list of being the mystery man. Although, I mean, what if he were the guy and, like, 
the trick is that actually he does want to distribute all his money to the people because it seems like if their whole thing is being the Robin Hood magicians and like a guy behind the curtain is telling them to be Robin Hood magicians, it might make sense that he was giving out all his money. But why would you frame it as a robbery at that point? I don't know. <laughs> throw throw people off the scent. You, you don't want them to know that you want to do this. I don't know. The motivation here, I don't know if you said this, is that the people in the audience had all had insurance claims denied. And I think it's suggested or stated that it's from Hurricane Katrina. They all had their claims denied by Michael Caine's insurance company. So now they're all getting that money that they really should have gotten when they were suffering from this this national disaster. Right. I guess that's important. And some more sort of topical commentary. You know, 2006, only seven years before <laughs> 2013. It's uh, ripped from the headlines. But then in the next scene, Tressler hires Thaddeus Bradley to help him track down the horseman, who he now has beef with. And immediately my thought is, how are you going to go and hire a guy if you just lost all your money? I guess he didn't lose all of it. He lost a chunk of it. But I guess he still has some money to throw around. Yeah, that was interesting. We went straight from this guy lost all his money to a few scenes of him saying, I will pay you whatever it takes to take them down. I, I thought of that as well. But the investigation by the FBI is still going on. They're doing what they can, which isn't too much. Still trying to catch the horseman. At this point, the Interpol agent tells a story about the Eye, which is apparently a secret society that's ancient, dating back to ancient Egypt. And it's a collective of magicians who their whole mission is doing Robin Hood stuff. Rob the rich to feed the poor. They said that they took food from the pharaohs using magic tricks and gave it to the servants or whatever the case may be. I do like secret societies as part of the magician lore. Like, I think Houdini was Freemason. Yeah, generally so do I. I and I like secret society backstories in movies in stuff like Da Vinci Code and National Treasure. But here, I don't know, it didn't quite land for me. It's like we didn't learn very much about what the eye is or what other things they've done. Just that, hey, you guys rob the rich to feed the poor? Well, magicians have been doing that forever, and maybe you want to sign on. I can buy that. But uh, apparently this Interpol agent knows about the secret society, so... Hey, we just crossed Michael Caine off the list, but maybe this person knows what's going on. Maybe maybe they could be the fifth horseman. That was something that had crossed my mind, especially since she was French. And the first trick had to do with France. And, you know, she's a good guy, but is she really a good guy, etc. And so, but then when they started lampshading that, I was like, hmm, probably not her if they're like, we're two thirds of the way into the movie and they're saying, wait, are you really on our side? Because we know that there's going to be a bigger reveal later. Yeah, something's coming. But 
I, I feel like French and magician kind of go together. You know, the association might not be as strong as, like, French and mime, but, I mean, Georges Moyes, obviously, sure. is French. And just that, uh, that spirit, that esprit, seems like they go hand in hand. We get this chase scene where Agent Rhodes is running around the city, and he's, like, following a beacon on his device or something. He's got, like, a little a ping on his Google Maps that he's running around the city chasing. And then somehow he, like, is running around in circles, and he eventually realizes that he's chasing himself. <laughs> and apparently the, the horsemen have, like, bugged his phone, cloned his phone, and so they've been able to listen in on the investigation for a while. And have been sending the agents on a wild goose chase. I will say a tension in these movies that becomes increasingly implausible as we go through two films is that these magicians need to be on stage to do their their shtick to steal their whatever thing they're going to do. They need to have an audience. But also for much of it, the FBI is after them trying to arrest them. So like you can maybe kind of get away with that for like two shows but then by the time we're you know four or five six shows in by the end of the second movie i i just found it increasingly ludicrous that they had not been arrested when they should have been arrested i actually kind of like that aspect i i feel like i have seen something that used a similar tactic I, I just think it's cool when the criminal is so above the law that they can flaunt it and maybe they need to get more creative with how they do it but that these like broadcasts that they do when the crime is going to happen before everyone's eyes and you can't stop me i think that's very dramatic and i i was into that aspect okay i just feel like you could do magic have a magic themed heist crime movie that doesn't require you putting on public shows that attract big audiences while you're being chased by criminals. Or I, I just felt like it got a little repetitive and, and unbelievable as we, as we went along with it. But I, I can see what you're saying. It is kind of fun to always be one up in the, the institution. You know, I agree that there's an element of repetitiveness here. I mean, they've got the three different, shows three different heists and multiple chase scenes which i did not really care for the chase scenes i don't know it, it seemed to distract uh, i well we'll get to ratings soon <laughs> but after they find out that the the phone's been bugged they're able to cut out the background noise and really get a signal on where they're at and they find the horseman in new york and we get another chase scene. This time it's they're in cars, so we've got a car car chase. And I mean, in addition to having the who's who roster of just endless actors, now we get this big budget car chase. So they were kind of showing their hand that they had some money to throw around on this movie. I thought. Is this the one where uh, Dave Franco is in the car chase? Yeah, Dave Franco crashes and burns. Right. So <laughs> I know that they're like world-class magicians, but I had another moment of broken disbelief when Dave Franco all of a sudden was 
like an action hero basically able to escape from and like out combat to FBI agents at once. Although he did have some cool tricks and it was kind of magic-y the way he did it. He basically felt like he was all of a sudden an action hero. Yeah, he's like baby driver. He's a super good getaway driver. Although not perfect because he does explode in a fireball. And so now, as far as the FBI is concerned, they're chasing three horsemen. Yeah, I will point out for the viewer's perspective, we see a silhouette of him in the car when the car explodes. We do not see him in the car. So this was one moment where I was like, okay, I know exactly what your trick is here. By this point, I wasn't like fully paying attention. And so I wasn't sure where everybody was. I, I kind of thought they were all in the car. And then in the next scene, realized, no, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I had kind of lost track of some of the people at this point. But the remaining horsemen announced that, or I, they don't really announce. It's like in the wreckage, I guess, the agents find evidence that the next show, the next performance is going to involve stealing a safe. And it's a safe from a safe company where they've got another stack of money in there, I guess. And this was weird to me because... The safe company, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the safe company keeps their money in a safe, but like, wouldn't the safe company have a whole bunch of safes? <laughs> and they're the company that makes the safe. So you could, they could just make more safes. They don't just need one safe. It would have been a lot harder to steal money if they had had like a hundred safes that all had a little bit of money. Exactly. And also, I, I just don't think of having the safe company safe be like, a big destination heist locale. It's like, it's not Fort Knox. <laughs> uh, it's just, it is a company that makes safes and they got a big safe full of money and we're going to go for that. So that's, that's MacGuffin number three here. I was fine with that. I was like, okay, they've done various, various thievery things, a big safe in a big warehouse. That's, I could buy in on that one. Yeah, it was fine. And in short order, Sure enough, the safe goes missing, and the FBI has been tracking it. They've got their eye on the warehouse. So they tear off across the city after this truck that's carrying this enormous Looney Tunes safe. But when they corner the truck, the safe is full of nothing but balloon animals. So we don't immediately get a resolution to this trick and how it was done and where really is the money. The cadence of revelations in this film is kind of interesting. We get a couple of mini revelations and then there's like a long build up to a grand revelation that ties together some of the previous ones as well. It's kind of like an overarching one. But for this last act, we are in the dark from like basically this moment until everything is revealed at the end. Yeah, we're kind of stacking up mysteries for a payoff that's going to come later. Uh, because, as Dan mentioned, the horsemen always have to do like a, a public press statement to really let everybody know what they're up to. So they like broadcast themselves on the side of skyscrapers in New York and announce that they've stolen all this money and that they're going to distribute it to the people 
And then they do appear in person on the tops of all these tall buildings. And they make it rain money on New York City. And the money is fluttering down. Rhodes chases them onto the roof. And he's, like, about to shoot them. But the French agent deters him and distracts him and he can't get a shot. So this is a, a moment, an instant where we're like, oh, maybe she's showing her hand. Maybe she's the, maybe she's part of their heist, their thievery. But the, the horsemen leap off the buildings and disappear in a cloud of money. Somehow they, they just disappear and they're gone and they're escaped again. Right. They're gone. I want to talk for a second about this money floating down. This is used in, I think, here two of their shows. And this is shown as like a, everyone's happy grabbing handfuls of cash. I feel like in real life, I'm imagining Black Friday where you have people punching each other to get the toy, but like amped up to 11. People fighting to get their hands on all this cash. Almost like they're looting from each other and taking stuff. Totally. It could get super violent. I'm going to mention Death Note later on. This is something that happens in Death Note. The crook is trying to use his devoted followers to, like, stall the FBI. But then the cop who's chasing him, the, like, master detective, just throws a bunch of money around. And then the mob goes crazy for the money and they, like, all start attacking each other. And the detective can just approach because... People who are easily sucked into worshipping things and just going crazy for whatever catches their appetites is not a very reliable army. Um, but it turns out that this money that's raining down is actually not the real money this time. It's fake, and it has their faces on it, the magician's faces. So there's real money somewhere we know, and... Pretty much immediately we see this big pile of the real money appear in Thaddeus Bradley's car. And he gets arrested for betting this robbery. Although it's a setup. And so this is when we get kind of a cavalcade of revelations. Just the dam breaks. And of course, who better to deliver information than narrator extraordinaire Morgan Freeman because Mark Ruffalo comes to visit Morgan Freeman in jail and as a debunker Freeman has figured everything out he says I was set up and he reveals ostensibly how all the tricks in this third act of the film were done so he says oh Dave Franco must have faked his death Oh, but he took a corpse from the morgue and just stuck it in the car when you weren't looking. <laughs> and because he faked his death, they didn't actually have to take the safe anywhere. They just hid it behind the mirror, and while you were chasing the three you still thought were alive, he just walked in the warehouse and he took the money. And then, spoiler warning here, guys, so if you really want to get the full experience... And you, you don't want to lose out on that. Uh, turn off the podcast app now. Because Morgan Freeman is like, Oh, now that you know how they did everything, you know it was the horseman who set me up and I had nothing to do with it. So go out now, Mark Ruffalo, and, and round them up and set me free. But Mark Ruffalo 
does not do that. Because, da-da-da, Mark Ruffalo himself, head FBI agent Rhodes, is the fifth horseman. Had you considered this possibility, Dan? I had not thought of this one, no. So for a split second, I thought about it. It's like, oh, what if they made him be the guy? And then I thought, that doesn't really make any sense. (laughs) I don't know. It's like several things that have happened would be ridiculous if that were the case. But that's the case. Yeah. He's the guy. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I actually really like this twist overall because it was one that was truly unpredictable. And I wanted to be surprised and astonished. A lot of the revelations were pretty interesting to me. Like the one with the safe, with the mirror. Oh, it's actually hidden behind a mirror, but you just can't see it because the mirror is angled in such a way that the container looks empty. was explained earlier in the movie. And so they ended up paying that off. I thought that was a cool, cool bit of writing. And truly having Mark Ruffalo be, first of all, if you're going to cast someone to be a head magician, Mark Ruffalo, kind of shaggy looking, talks kind of like this, not very, I don't know, like it's kind of the opposite of Jesse Eisenberg in the way that he speaks, very brisk. Mark Ruffalo does not hop off the screen as a potential magician. So it was an interesting bit of casting deception as well. And for me, it scratched the itch. The more you think about things that happened, A, it doesn't make sense. Like a lot of the things are just truly ridiculous. And B, it almost makes the fact that the horsemen were able to get away with so much less impressive because their head honcho the whole time was the one who was supposedly tracking them down. So he could just sabotage any effort to find them. Yeah, those are all good points. To just quickly take a line from The Prestige, which I know I keep harping on, there's a magician in that that they describe as being really super effective because his entire life is the illusion. Like, the trick doesn't just happen on stage. It's every waking moment of your life you can be perpetrating a ruse. You can be assuming another identity. And so a payoff like that, I can see how that's appealing. Yeah, for me, as soon as I kind of caught on to what the movie was, my thought was... I'm not expecting this movie to be entirely good or coherent. I just want it to be entertaining and have a twist that truly surprises me. And that is exactly what happened. So from that angle, I was satisfied with the outcome. But it raises another question for me now, which is that, okay, Thaddeus Bradley has just laid out how all the tricks were done. So he knows that he's been framed and can explain it in detail how that happened. But also, he now knows that Rhodes is the fifth horseman. So, like, couldn't he use that as a bargaining chip with literally any other cop? It seems like he could. I mean, I I guess the thought is that Rhodes has, like, hidden the evidence well enough that they're not going to have anything on him. But even just raising that suspicion seems like it would have some effect. Yeah, my read on it was that I mean, I guess we we don't see, like, obviously a trial or anything, but Morgan Freeman is like an iron bars cage locked away at this point. Even though it doesn't really make sense that, like, we are to assume that he has already been sentenced to rot in this jail. So, doesn't matter what he says, he's he's away. But you're right. It's a twist that 
if you start poking and prodding at it too much, it's going to become less and less compelling, I would say. We get a pair of finale scenes after this where all the magicians have joined together and Rhodes welcomes them into the eye, the secret society. They're at like a carnival and they all climb onto a carousel and they like disappear into thin air through the carousel or, or something. They enter some some exclusive eye-only area. And so they're initiates now into the secret society. We get the sense they're going to go deeper into the rabbit hole and learn more of the organization's secrets if and when the series continues. Finally, we get a scene with Ruffalo and the agent from France together in Paris and he shares with her that he is actually the son of Lionel Shrike. So, like, twists on twists here, reveals on reveals. That magician from earlier who got egged on by Bradley to keep doing more and more dangerous things until he died in the midst of a magic act was Mark Ruffalo's father. So, really, he's not Rhodes at all. He's a Shrike. So, I think the Now You See Me 2 article just called him Dylan the whole way. Because nobody ever calls him Shrike, but he is a Shrike, I guess. Right. And you can't call him Rhodes anymore once you know that, so... I I think I'll just call him Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) Keep it simple. This is important because all of the big heists of the movie were revenge plots. Because, obviously, he wanted Morgan Freeman to end up in jail because he sees Morgan Freeman and his debunking as being responsible in driving his dad to his death. But also, the French bank and the insurance company, like, stiffed the family on the dad's life insurance claim. Which, (laughs) I'd actually be interested to know more about magician life insurance. (laughs) That's a good point. If your whole thing is, like, death-defying feats... It, it seems like it might be hard to get insured, honestly. But then the, the final bit, the safe company, if you'll recall, the fatal magic trick was getting dropped into a river locked in a safe. And I guess this safe turned out to be faulty. Like, when it hit the riverbed, the metal bent or something, and the lock release didn't work anymore, so he couldn't get out. At least we think, because I guess... The safe and the body were never found, so how do they know that the safe didn't work? It's a franchise Chekhov's gun. Not answered here, but I think uh, something for sequels to consider. Right, right. She agrees that she's going to keep his secret. And they lock a love lock on the Paris Bridge where you do that, but you're not supposed to do that, and I guess the cops don't like it. But it's a tradition... And the way it's presented here in the film is, like, if you lock a love lock and throw the key in the river, it means that you're going to keep the person's secrets. And the key drops into the river, and we end with a shot of just keys on keys on keys all over the riverbed. (laughs) And it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark ending where, you know, the one key we see represents one mystery, but there's a million more. Right. And like in 12 Monkeys, there's a hint when Bruce Willis is in... The asylum that the delusion that he's having that we are kind of witnessing is just one for every, all of those 
people in the mental health hospital who are living their own fantasy lives. This is just the one we happen to be seeing. So I like this ending shot. Anytime that you can imply that there's a lot more out there, I I enjoy that. Yeah, that's good. I don't think we've mentioned it yet, but the first Now You See Me was directed by a guy named Louis Leterrier, or perhaps it's Louis Leterrier, (laughs) which would be interesting if that were the case, if he's actually a French guy, because obviously France and French people prominently featured in that film. So Louis Leterrier, he is French. He also directed the first two Transporter movies, which for me in high school were just the epitome of stupid but ludicrously fun action movies to watch. So I have a soft space in my heart for him. But he's got a couple other movies that I was always intrigued by but never saw because of, I don't know, like mixed reviews, etc. Like he did The Incredible Hulk, I think he did the one that was the MCU one before Hulk got recast, but there was also like a Hulk from a couple years before then. And then he also did the Clash of the Titans movie. So he's an interesting director. Oh, yeah, I should have done my research. Man, that Hulk mishmash, just the, the sudden revolving door of Hulks. What, a, what an era in cinema. Right, because it was like three and ten years there was the Ang Lee Hulk. Then they had the one where it's Ed Norton from Fight Club. And then they immediately forgot that because I guess the right said that they couldn't make any more solo Hulk movies or something. It was like one studio retained the rights to solo Hulk. Weird. And and for some reason, the casting change also happened, I guess. It was strange. The new Hulk in the MCU is Mark Ruffalo, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not big on those movies in general, but he he does play Hulk, right? That's right. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the post-credits scene in the first Ed Norton Hulk, (laughs) is that actually it was Mark Ruffalo all along. (laughs) But when the time came for a sequel, there was a new director. This is a guy named John Chu, who is a Chinese-American director recently had a big success with Crazy Rich Asians. I guess he also does a lot of musical movies, like he did the film adaptation of In the Heights. I I think he's slated to direct the Wicked movie that's coming. I don't know if In the Heights has come out yet, and I don't think Wicked has either. I think both are coming this year, so 2021 could be a big year for John Chu. There is going to be a third Now You See Me. Now you three me, if you will. Oh. In the second film, which will be a little more merciful in the length of our recap, or at least try, Isla Fisher did not return. Apparently she was pregnant. So they kind of loop Lizzie Kaplan into the mix as a replacement. So, Dan, I think you're a Lizzie Kaplan fan. Is that right? I am indeed. Lizzie Kaplan is one of my favorites. I've always liked her, but she went to my top tier of comic actresses in the TV show Party Down, where she's a snarky comedian struggling to make it in Hollywood. And she is a favorite in everything I watch that she's in now. I seek out her movies. I think literally every movie would be improved. I can't think of a movie that wouldn't be improved with Lizzie Kaplan making quips. 
Like just bring any movie, bring Lizzie Kaplan in, bam, you just bumped it up a star rating for me. Like in The Godfather, it could have been Lizzie Kaplan saying, you think he's going to refuse that offer? And Godfather would be next level for me. So yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I'm big on Lizzie Kaplan. I think it's interesting that both of the movies had the same writer. Uh, so Ed Solomon penned the scripts. I knew of him because he co-wrote the Bill and Ted movies with Chris Matheson. And I don't really know who was more responsible. I think they shared writing duties. I am a fan of those. Also in my reading, I didn't read that much about the directors. Obviously, I should have. Um, But I did read that Chris Matheson was sci-fi writer Richard Matheson's son. The guy who wrote I Am Legend. Huh. And I think he, like, contributed Twilight Zone scripts and stuff. Show business can run in the family, obviously. I mean, a couple weeks back we were talking about uh, the Barrymores. That's right. Theater and and filmmaking dynasties are nothing new. Yeah. And we have the Panettiere dynasty led by Jansen, of course. (laughs) And his star-making turn in The Last Day of Summer. At some point, our self-references are going to be too deep for anyone to follow but ourselves. No, you just you just have to get into the lore. You just have to start at the <laughs> beginning because there's an ancient secret society that once you prove yourself worthy, you can join and it will all make sense. And you can answer, is it good? Yes. Our final trick will be that we'll have you come on the podcast. We'll summon you, warp you here, and you pass judgment on us, whether the show could should even continue. <laughs> One last thought on that, and then you can jump into the actual topic at hand i've mentioned several times the podcast the anthropocene reviewed is one of my favorite podcasts so the the premise is it reviews things on a five-star scale and is like a mini essay about them so like one episode he reviewed Haley's comet and gave it a rating one episode he reviewed canada geese and gave them a rating the second last episode he reviewed the anthropocene reviewed his own podcast which i thought was pretty meta and pretty funny I like that. So I was a little surprised, honestly, that these two movies had the same writer because they felt different to me. Completely agree. Maybe it's the cast change as part of it. I thought this movie was funnier. It placed a lot more focus on like comedic banter, less on stuff like car chases. Yeah, I agree. And honestly, I mean, we can talk more about this and the good things, not so good things. Like the when you actually talk through and think about now you see me the first one the four magicians are really not the stars of the film despite getting first billing mark ruffalo is by far the central character of the first film we get not that much info on the actual personalities and character development of the four magicians which i thought was a little bit of a shame because you have these four charming actors that all have pretty good comic chops there was a lot of room for good banter and i feel like it did not capitalize on that so i was really excited to see that we got a lot more of that in the second movie yeah i was enjoying myself watching this one for the most part i i also appreciated that it seemed to take itself a little less seriously there was less of the i mean there's still the secret society involved it it just seemed less self-important less self-righteous there's not as much of the um attempts at being topical Uh, there's there's some there is some because here the villain is social media 
moguls taking your private data. And the main antagonist isn't just a tech mogul. He's a tech mogul who was spurned by his co-founder partner in a Jesse Eisenberg movie. Ring any bells there? <laughs> a little bit. But here he's played not by Eduardo Severin or um, the Winklevosses. Yeah, he's not he's not Andrew Garfield or um, Army Hammer. But there are fake twins involved. Movie magic twins. And uh, the, the, the main villain is Daniel Radcliffe thrown into the mix now. Yeah, it takes about 15 minutes to realize that this movie is going to be totally different because over the course of just a few minutes, we get a completely ridiculous Jimi Hendrix needle drop as we meet Daniel Radcliffe very shortly after we've met a fake twin of Woody Harrelson. I was like, okay, this one's going to have a little bit more fun because, of course, the bad guy who's trying to take down the magicians is none other than the most famous magician in uh, modern cultural history, Harry Potter. That's right. He's a wizard. And his sort of right-hand man, his lackey, is the brother of Woody Harrelson's character that we heard briefly mentioned in the first movie, uh, but we had never seen. And here he turns out to be an identical twin brother. So he's he's Woody Harrelson, but with like veneers on his teeth and this goofy like Will Ferrell wig, like this bush of curly hair. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I was surprised that they did that. And I'm sure, I don't know if you've already brought this up as a prestige parallel and spoilers to the prestige. Skip ahead 10 seconds if you haven't watched that movie. Twins play a major role in the prestige, unexpected twins. That's right. And here, you're right. There's a theme of partners betraying partners. So the, the brother betrayed Woody Harrelson and this tech mogul that they meet, we'll uh, we'll get back with him in just a second. But betrayal is important. So when we jump into the movie here, we get like a quick little intro recap, narrated by who else? Morgan Freeman, and it's kind of this cool animated sequence. There's like a lot of little um, like optical illusions that are animated, and it's it's telling a little bit of the story of the first film. Is like a PowerPoint with these cool illusions. It's got some cool gimmicks where it's like the word saint, you like you worship these guys, but you flip it upside down and it's one of those stylized texts that's something different upside down. And this, it's the word thief if you turn it upside down. And the word believe is knocked down and the shadow shows lie or something like that. Right, so it's like word puzzles. It's it's sorts of things that like Jonathan Frakes would unveil on Beyond Belief and do like a shit-eating grin after he shares the illusion. Um, so I'm always a fan of things like that. But after this quick recap, we are introduced once again to the Four Horsemen, who are now operating as agents of the eye. Though this is kind of just a continuation of the same status quo where they are receiving anonymous orders. Like somebody behind a curtain is telling them what to do with the difference that now Mark Ruffalo is part of the group and in fact the leader of the group. Uh, we see that Jesse Eisenberg is kind of chafing under this new authority because he used to be the alpha magician. Uh, we also get some scenes of 
Mark Ruffalo, whether you call him Rhodes or call him Shrike or Dylan, he's continuing to lead the FBI on a wild goose chase. So this uh, this change for the audience is kind of like if you watch the later Saw movies, I think specifically Saw's four through six, we find out in four that one of the cops who is investigating the jigsaw crimes is actually committing the jigsaw crimes. And so then in, in saws five and six, we see like him doing his behind the scenes things and then eventually being found out and being chased by the rest of the cops. Yeah. I think this is like an Alfred Hitchcock thing where the viewer knows something that the central character knows, but is trying to stay one step ahead of the people around them. It's a very different feel from the first movie when it was like, who, who is it going to be? Who's the secret person? But this time we know who it is, and we're just trying to see them stay one step ahead of everyone else. Right, but I mean specifically to see them holding the reins of the organization responsible for catching them. Yeah, that's true. It's an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. So early on, there's a tech presentation, like a Steve Jobs, black turtleneck, unveil the iPad type deal. Tech mogul, I think his name is Owen Case. He's going to present this new new iPhone, basically, this new type of cell phone that he's going to be selling. But they've hypnotized him. And <laughs> it's like an anchorman uh, teleprompter thing. Or, or what? what's the other one? Um, uh, Bruce Almighty, where McKinney has like control over what the guy is going to say. And so he makes the guy spill his guts and has Owen Case reveal that the whole point of this new wave of cell phones is going to be to steal people's data, which like, is that that big a revelation? I think people know at this point that that's what cell phones do. I I I wish it weren't that way, but it is. Yeah, this was written pre some of the bigger data scandals. So I can see how it would have had at least a little bit of an impact in 2016. I guess that's true. I think people should have made more noise after Edward Snowden, and I was very disappointed by people's complacency. But here we are in 2021. Anyhow, their heist gets heisted. Like, they think they're holding the reins, but really... Somebody else takes control. So <laughs> the mogul was going to make a presentation, but the magicians butt in to make their presentation. But then this other mystery party butts in to make actually their presentation, where they announce that Dave Franco is not dead, and more importantly, that Rhodes is the fifth horseman. So uh, everything goes nuts. Rhodes is, like, immediately arrested and the four horsemen dart out a back door, and we get a trick that echoes the first movie because they dive down a garbage chute to get away, and when they come out the other end of the garbage chute, they are in China somehow. And apparently they had not planned to be in China. They're just suddenly there. Right, so at this point, the tables have completely turned on them. Yeah, now they're in somebody else's trick. They don't know what's going on. It's like an inversion of the Paris thing where they were pretending to be in Paris, but were never there all along. Here, are they actually in China? Well, they actually are somehow through what appears to be magic. 
Uh, just to circle back to the never were in Paris thing. The, so the the reveal there is that they were in Paris, just not while the show was going on. They they were there previously. They stole the money. They replaced it with fake money. And then at the moment that they did the show, they set the fake money on fire inside the vault because they had like a thing there in the vault that could they could trigger and it could burn up the fake money. Good point. <laughs> Not to belabor anything, but somebody was in Paris. Uh, but in, in pretty short order here in China, specifically Macau, which is like a semi-autonomous region that has gambling. So sort of the Las Vegas of China, if you will. They get brought by Woody Harrelson's goofy twin, Woody Harrelson, to Daniel Radcliffe, who explains that he wants the the four horsemen to get his revenge on this guy we saw earlier owen case which like why interrupt what they were already doing because they were already sabotaging owen case but i guess specifically what daniel radcliffe wants is he says that case was his business partner but stole his company away cut him out like you said social network style and the key MacGuffin that Radcliffe wants is this computer chip that kind of hand wavily is described as able to access any computer, decrypt any message. And so this is going to be the treasure that they're after. They're the, the subject of their heist. I will say that that is, of course, patently ludicrous. But there is something to the fact that if you have a machine or a chip or an algorithm that can really decrypt any message either via sufficiently intense computing power or some sort of algorithm that math has not yet been able to prove that basically our entire technological infrastructure is built on that ability to encrypt. So as someone who's learned a little bit about it, I, I didn't completely roll my eyes at it. Okay, well, that's good to know. I'm not a computer scientist, but I do acknowledge that something that broke all encryption would be super valuable. But also I, I like have my suspicions that they already have it. The government can already read everything, and I'm not a fan. Not a fan of that or the government or... <laughs> but, of course, they're listening to our recordings, so I won't say too much here on the air. <laughs> yeah, and certainly if such a thing were to exist, it wouldn't exist in the form as described here. That's like this tiny little chip that you can just take with you wherever you go. It's the size and thickness of a playing card. Very handy. Which we'll see turns out to be important. So now they're after this computer chip, and the magicians pose as buyers, like interested parties who could afford to buy this super expensive computer chip, and they go to this tech facility where it's housed. I'm not sure why they aren't recognized by anyone, if they're all supposedly huge celebrities, how they could just go and pose as these other people. They do, like, go under assumed names, but they don't really disguise themselves. They just wear different clothes. There's a lot to pick apart in this movie. There's a lot of things there that did not make sense to me. So first, not just their celebrities, but they're people who just recently took over a major tech event and would be in the headlines. And actually, it was this guy's company. Right. It was this dude. So he would have, like, wanted posters everywhere. Yeah, and also, they assume identities, but, like, they don't do a lot of preparation because there's this bit. It is pretty funny in the moment, but it does not make any sense where you think that the person that Lizzie Kaplan is impersonating is, 
like the arm candy bimbo. But in fact, she's the scientist who's supposed to be doing the buying or something along those lines. But it's like, didn't you at least do full preparation on who you're supposed to be imitating here? Yeah, like that seems like it would come to light fairly quickly. (laughs) But we get kind of the key action-y cinematography gimmick here in an extended scene of something called cardistry. This is like playing card juggling. Uh, I guess John Chu's films are known for featuring a lot of dance and intricate choreography. And and this is pretty much the closest we get to that in this movie. But it, it is very choreographed because they are able to distract somebody and pull the computer chip out of the machine, which, as they said, is shaped like a playing card. And then they, like, shift it from one person to the next and, like, hide it between their fingers and in their armpits. And because they're being searched while they're juggling it around, but it's always staying, you know, just out of sight. So I really liked this set piece. This was one of the most fun scenes across these two movies, in my opinion. It's like a good payoff on how you can be thieves, heist masters, but also magicians. Because, like, manipulating cards is very famously a magician thing. And they're, like, really good at it, but they're also stealing a big thing. And it's very visually pleasing to see the card move around. I assume it's not actually that realistic, but it was very fun and cool to watch. True. To bring back something Dan used to say a lot in our early episodes, I guess you could call this the promise of the premise. What would what would magician thieves do? They would do something like this. So this is what I want this this series to turn more towards is things that don't have to be public shows, but where they get to use their magic skills to be really good thieves. I agree. I think that would be compelling. But so now they've got this chip in their possession. There's some discussion. Oh, are we going to give it to Daniel Radcliffe? Because he seems like a shady guy. And they kind of confer and say, no, we're going to try to deliver it into the hands of the eye so that they have the power. Meanwhile, Dylan Rhodes is still out and about somehow i don't know he got arrested somehow though he tracks down thaddeus bradley and they discuss that what they're gonna do is he's gonna get thaddeus bradley out of jail on like a a work release or something or he can like take him out for 24 hours i guess (laughs) uh, because bradley's such a good debunker and always seems to be steps ahead of people he's gonna help Rhodes get to china and find the horseman. I, I was confused at this point why Rhodes was able to go out and about and do anything, why Bradley was able to get out and about and do anything, but of course you got to have Morgan Freeman do stuff in your movie, so he's out now, and they're all headed together to China. It sets up this parallel storylines that are happening, both of which I thought were fun and in some ways improved upon the original. So you have... Mark Ruffalo, whatever his name is at this point, with Morgan Freeman together, kind of like a buddy cop routine, but a sort of antagonistic on the run, trying to get to China to discover the the missing horsemen. And then you have the four horsemen themselves who are kind of down on their luck. They've been swindled. They're the underdogs now trying to make their way out. I thought this was a dynamic that benefited the movie. Yeah, it was good threads to explore in a sequel. Like, how do you continue the story? I think they made some good choices of things to pursue. Right. We get a reveal here that Daniel Radcliffe is apparently Arthur Tressler's illegitimate son. So Michael Caine reappears and they're in cahoots and they both 
have nothing good to say about the horseman. But when Bradley and Rhodes arrive in China, Tressler captures Rhodes. Obviously, we saw in the first movie, Rhodes was masterminding this revenge scheme against Bradley and the Tresslers. And so now he's in the hands of Michael Caine and Daniel Radcliffe. And they do this supervillain thing where they pull out, apparently, I guess, the very same safe that his dad drowned in and trap Mark Ruffalo in it and throw him in a body of water. And and so I, I was unclear. Was this the exact same safe? I think not. One thing that I don't know if we've mentioned, there's this also this ancient magic shop that the, that's in Macau that the four horsemen are taking advantage of to plan their activities now. And one thing they have back in their warehouse, back in their, their back room of this magic shop is prototypes of the safe that was used. So they point out at one point that, oh, we have a prototype of it. It's not the one he used, but it's the one that he used for practice and design and stuff. Okay, well, that... So I do not think it is intended to be the original. That makes sense then, because surprise, surprise, he's able to get it to work as intended. Like there's a release on the inside and it ties into like a, a flashback scene of him talking with his dad and he's able to discern how to get it to work from the inside. I am glad you mentioned the magic shop. Uh, it's run by a Chinese family. The magicians describe it in kind of hushed tones as the oldest magic shop in the world. But then when we see it, it's like a run-of-the-mill commercial magic shop with like a bunch of plastic props on the shelves. However, as they win the confidence of the Chinese family, eventually they do open like a back door and there's a whole endless, more spooktacular magic shop like what we had been expecting. Yeah, I like that too. That was funny. I also always like the bit where they pretend they don't speak the language, the English or whatever language, and then ultimately they can. That's been used in a lot of places. Game of Thrones, uh, Jackie Chan in uh, Rush Hour, and I liked it here too. But Ruffalo is able to escape from the safe. He's back on the lamb again. I thought one good decision in this movie was to limit it to one big heist instead of three. Keeps things arguably a little more focused. Although there were still times that I found myself confused. There's discussion about whether the chip that they have is real or fake. And I could not keep track of that at all. That one really bugged me. I, d I felt like the, oh, but the chip is just a fake. So basically at that point, they'd won. They had the chip. They had the people. So for me, it, we're basically an hour and a half into the movie now. End the movie there. Or give us the one big reveal that we're ultimately going to get about who was pulling the strings this time around. And then end the movie. Why do we have to have an additional half hour where, oh, it's fake. And so we got to go and get the real one. But then I think it turns out that there it, it actually was the real one and they just didn't realize it. Like that is, if it's anything other than that, it was not explained well. And I thought that that was really dumb. Okay, I that sounds right. Because ultimately, like the one they had before, Daniel Radcliffe says is the real one. And I was trying to figure out if he was lying or if he was hypnotized or what was happening. But I think the key is that, yes, essentially they've had it since they got it from the facility. But they've got the chip now and... They're going to do one of their classic reveal shows where they make some big announcement to the people and defraud a corporate mogul because that's who they are. 
So they announced that they're going to go to London and basically that they're going to rat out that Daniel Radcliffe is a nasty dude. And so the Tresslers are chasing after them. Oh, they can't do this. They can't go there and expose our secrets. <laughs> it seems like the Tresslers triumph. They are able to intercept the horsemen in London. They load them onto a private jet. And when they climb into the clouds, they and the brother, the the goofy Woody Harrelson clone, triumphantly laugh as they throw the horsemen out of the plane to their ostensible deaths. But then, like, a light comes on, and the horsemen are just standing there somehow outside the windows of the plane. And it turns out this whole thing was on, like, a soundstage. And the plane actually never left the ground. It was in, like, a wind tunnel that was all created around it. And so this was all just, like, an elaborate use of the hypnosis, I guess. Yeah, there's one invocation of the hypnosis and some more just trickery behind the scenes with the practical effects, with the fans blowing to make it feel like you're in an airplane, etc. It was kind of cool. I I have mixed feelings about this reveal. I was disappointed overall, I have to say, because the big reveals, I mean, there is still one revelation yet to come that I think you're going to get to in a moment, but the first movie did a good job of having the last 15 minutes be one, you thought it was this, but it was actually this after another that kind of piled up into one narrative that we didn't actually see was going on, but in fact was. It was really this revenge plot that was all related to the the one uh, magician who died in a safe. But this doesn't really have any of that cohesion that ties the whole movie together. And so I thought the revelation felt a little bit weak, especially since its necessity hinged on this chip being fake. So for me, that was a little bit of a shoulder shrug, but I guess in a vacuum, the some of the things that they did to make us as well as the Tresslers think certain things were pretty fun. So hypnotism is presented differently in the two movies, at least the way I felt about it, because the first movie's presentation, it really felt more like the handful of hypnosis and mentalist shows that I've watched, where it's really about like the power of suggestion and reading facial cues and things. It's like you can plant information and you can extract information. And, and that's the key here. It's a little more cartoony, like running up to a person and saying sleep and they like drop limp. Yeah, it got more and more ludicrous. I agree. So I, I was a little down more on the hypnosis in this movie. Uh, so when the final ruse hinged so much on people being hypnotized i didn't like it quite as much but the the practical effects around the plane were kind of cool but the tresslers are brought to justice and the movie ends with the horsemen being like welcomed into a body of eye members and so the chinese family that runs the magic shop is there and a big reveal you got to always just pile those on here at the end of these movies, it turns out. Thaddeus Bradley is there. I guess Morgan Freeman has been like a head honcho, if not the head honcho of the eye all along. I'm not sure how much scrutiny that stands up to, just like the Mark Ruffalo one in the first movie. It doesn't really make sense with the character as we understood it so far, but it was at least something in the similar vein where you saw someone who was pulling the strings all along. Yeah, arguably more interesting... Morgan Freeman says that he had actually been a partner of 
Mark Ruffalo's dad, and that their whole shtick was being the two sides of the debunker and the vexed magician who has to keep doing more outlandish things because he's always being bothered by this debunker. And this concept that they were in cahoots actually made a lot of sense to me and I kind of liked. Right, it's like a symbiotic relationship. Like, oh, he's got to debunk an even bigger thing, which brought, brings attention to the debunker, but also the debunkee. But now the debunkee needs to do an even more ridiculous thing and that cycle repeats and they both benefit from the attention that gets. And yeah, they just feed off of each other's publicity. Thaddeus congratulates Mark Ruffalo on kind of giving up his vengeance from the first movie. He's no longer obsessed with vengeance, and so now he can take his rightful place among the elite of the eye and welcome everybody to the secret society and what other mysteries may the future hold. Tune in, perhaps, in part three. Which I think is coming out in 2022. Yes, possibly one of the many, many projects derailed and and held back in the pipeline by the mess that has been 2020 and 2021. Right. So let's just quickly spitball some, some thoughts on these movies. So impressions, positive or negative, Dan, about the, uh, the first film that uh, you might not have touched on yet. Now we see me 2013. We, I don't know if we've said this directly, but in addition to being a big cast, I actually think it's a pretty effective cast. I, I like pretty much every appearance here charming sometimes funny although i will repeat that i feel like they didn't there was untapped comedic potential in the first one given how funny the cast is i agree i i like everybody that's here and it just goes on and on i mean like the minion from house of cards is there as an fbi agent it's just like a bunch of familiar faces the rapper common is there I don't know. It's just a ton of people and it verges a little bit into too many cooks territory. It just in the sense that with so many figures, it's like, how do you give them all meaningful things to do? But most of them do get done some justice and, and what you see them do is memorable. Yeah, I agree. I also just think in general, the idea of like magic performance deception, aligning with deception of stealing things and pulling off these heists It's a fun concept, and when we're actually seeing those in action, it's pretty satisfying and pretty cool. Right, the disconnect between a magic performance, you're being deceived but delighted. (laughs) When you're being robbed, obviously, you're, you're being deceived but not in a way that you enjoy. So, it's played compellingly. And I've got to say, I got pretty much what I wanted going in from Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman. I... Can't say anything too bad about the performances they turn in. Uh, you've got Kane being a stuffy British man. Uh, he's just always so charming. I, I like Michael Kane. And then we get Morgan Freeman always being the one who shares the secrets and lets us in on the knowledge. And he gets to use his mellifluous voice. Some downsides to the first movie for me, though... I I can't say enough bad about the CGI in the magic tricks. There's a trick where Isla Fisher floats around in a bubble. I don't know what it is. I like like it when girls float in bubbles. That's just a thing for me. I don't know. But here, when she's like, that bubble is not really there. It's a superimposed bubble. And it's just very fake. (laughs) Ugh. It irritated me. 
See, that's funny because that didn't really pull me out nearly as much as some of the other plot holes did. The the first movie especially, it felt a little preachy to me. The twists and turns got a little convoluted. I didn't really care about the car chases. I agree. It didn't have quite the right tone to be really fun. It was a little too serious and intense. I think the second movie corrected course on that. Yeah, I liked the bigger focus on humor. We got a lot more banter between the magicians. I especially liked some of the exchanges between Eisenberg and Harrelson that called to mind some of the barbs they traded in Zombieland. Right. And of course, we got Lizzie Kaplan always quipping. Another thing in the first movie that bugged me, we didn't really talk about, is the romance between Mark Ruffalo and the Interpol agent is just so not believable to me. Like, they don't really have chemistry. It doesn't really make sense from a plot perspective. And I didn't buy it. I thought it was just tacked on. Yeah. And then the only thing I've got marked as a not-so-good thing about the second movie is the the fake-out with the chip of is the chip fake or not fake. And in the end, I was just scratching my head and wasn't even really sure. Somebody had the real chip. Uh, I guess one other question is, where the heck is Lionel Shrike? Maybe that'll be the plot of three. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that'll be explored in the third movie. I mean, I assume that he's going to be still alive or there's something we don't know because you don't have a magician's movie where the safe and the body were never found. And then the mystery is, oh, it just floated a mile downstream and he's been riding there for 50 years now. (laughs) But wouldn't that be a twist? That would be, you know what? I would actually almost be worth it because of how surprising that would be. (laughs) A very, very short movie. So one thing I wanted to briefly talk about I kind of alluded to this earlier. I was having trouble reconciling the quote unquote magic of movies. I mean, obviously movies, you can edit, you can superimpose things. You can make not real things happen. Like there's no reason that they could have not in story actually transported to Paris in during that show in the first one. It's just movies. You can make whatever happens, happens. Part of what makes magic so fun and here i mean performance magic like rabbit out of the hat magic is that when it's in person they're doing things that would seem to be impossible and so for me i found myself kind of at odds where like they were doing these things oh how do they do it but it's in a medium where we've come to accept that they're going to do things that aren't impossible so i wasn't wowed as much as i think the movie wanted me to be wowed especially because it did some suspension of disbelief breaking things. Like when it said, Oh, we're in Paris with the little text bar and stuff. That was something that kept me a little bit separated. And one of the things I love about the prestige is that it really takes its time to reckon with that and think about that in a way that this movie does not. And so I just kind of always felt myself unsure. Like, what are we being deceived by? What is real? What isn't? What's fake? And that kind of amplified by the fact that, you know, the hypnosis can basically do whatever it wants by the end of the second movie. It can make people act in ways they would never act, not reveal things they would reveal, etc. That just felt unrealistic. That kind of piled up for me as, as the movies went along. Right. This is why the CGI was so offensive to me. Just that it it's clear that that's something that's done by the movie, and it pulls me out of even trying to believe that the magicians are doing these things. Sure. And you're right. The prestige's strength lies a lot in the fact that, you know, 
the magic performance that we see is very like realistic, very grounded in the tradition of the art. And then when super mysterious, seemingly impossible things start happening, you're scratching your head and, and you're trying to figure out what's happening and how they're doing what they're doing. Right. I had one more not so good thing about the second movie. That is, if you're going to have a magic movie and you're going to have a twin, you need to do something where the twin is used as deception. And that never happens. There needs to be at least one. You think it's one of them, but it's really the other one of them. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, you're right. One thing I liked, a line from Lizzie Kaplan. She mentions a couple times that a trick that she did that was unsuccessful was pulling a hat out of a rabbit. And we never see <laughs> what that involved, but it sounds bloody. Yeah, and it's mentioned to be bloody. That I thought that was funny. Um, I did think it was interesting. We don't need to dive t- into it too much here. The prominence of China in the second movie. I had a friend who made a documentary, and this was already back in like 2012, about how China plays such an outsized role i mean it's got a huge population but a a large role in what makes it into blockbuster movies these days and it's just more and more the case as the years go by that they kind of color what is presented i mean it's it's capitalism it's if the movie needs to make a lot of money in a certain place play to that audience yeah, I mean, I know, like, when you hear sometimes the biggest grossing movies of the year were, like, top 20 barely in the U.S., but then do such outsized business in foreign markets, which my understanding is what you just said, that is increasingly just China, that that is a huge impact. Like, I know the Fast and Furious series does massive business in China, and that's one of the reasons they keep cranking them out, and they keep being, like, the highest grossing movie of the year, or, like, the highest one behind whatever a superhero movie just came out right and disney is making fistfuls of money with chinese markets through the marvel superheroes uh you know they were literally over there filming mulan recently so i just have that as an interesting thing i think it's a, a mark of the times in that regard well now is the time as our show draws to a close to make our judgment. So, Dan, when it comes to our two movies that we've talked about here, what do you think? Is it good? So, on our eight-scale rating of goodness, I'm going to give the first movie a low-ish four. That would be our good-ish rating. And the reason is that I think it doesn't really stand up on its own all that well, but for the specific thing I wanted it to do, which is to have a gotcha ending that I didn't see coming and made some of the previous stuff worth it in a surprising way, it did that in a way that satisfied me, even if I didn't like the tone and I thought parts of it were a bit of a drag. So I'm going to give that a four, a good-ish. As for Now You See Me Too, I liked it more than the first overall, and I was ready to give it a five. Good. But I really think it's like 15 minutes longer than the first one. That last half hour, I'd say just chop off the last bit, go straight from he made it out of the safe 
to the revelation that it was Morgan Freeman and maybe you have some capper that they use the chip for good now that the eye has it or something like that. So you can still get your corporate revenge. That last half hour was disappointing enough for me and it's pacing and the fact that it didn't really add much to what we had already seen prior to that, that I'm going to give it a high four good-ish. So both of them land at a four on our eight point. Is it good scale for me? Well, Dan, I know you got to jump out the back and dive down a garbage chute to make your escape because your time is tight. So no surprises for me. I actually feel pretty much exactly the same way, except I am going to stick a low three on the first movie, not not good, and a high three on the second. And it's for pretty much the same reasons you have said, uh, maybe with the added detriment of having somewhat high expectations going in. I I wanted to really love this movie. I wonder if there's an age in my life when I would have loved it. Would would 13-year-old Brian have loved it? Would I have loved it when it came out in, in 2013? I don't know. Because I do really like magician stories, and I'm usually even one for secret societies, even if they're goofy. I love National Treasure. But this just didn't really land for me. It was a little too convoluted. It was a little too self-important and preachy. And the the car chases, uh, I've said it a couple times, it just didn't really seem to fit with the rest of it. Uh, that it, it got, like, action-y. And, and it just kind of dragged on. I don't know. I, I wanted something different from the first film. And I got it in the second one. It was funnier. And I was really enjoying myself through, like, the first two-thirds, exactly like you said, and I was going to bump that up a whole number grade or even two number grades from the first one, but then the card, like, changing hands, and maybe it's real and maybe it's not, and there's, like, multiple scenes of megalomaniacal villain chuckling between the two Tresslers, and it just seemed redundant after it happened more than once. And it was like, trim the fat a little bit, guys, because you're bringing me down here in the final act when I should be hyped up. So that is it for me. Three and three. There you go. I would say watch The Prestige if you want a better magician movie. Watch Arrested Development if you want a funnier magician movie. (laughs) Ta-da. Okay, so after that uh, maybe not entirely satisfying magic show dan what have you got for us next i know that you like to think about movies seasonally probably even more than i do we're coming up on but not quite at my favorite season for movies and that is the start of summer the end of the school year the prom the excitement of a new summer ahead of you both in in you know high school and youth stories and other stories Uh, i just like that period in, in films of the year We're not quite there yet, so instead I'm going to go with something else seasonal, which is that the Oscars just happened. And I have a list of Oscar-winning movies I've wanted to see, and I'm going to pick one of those. But I'm going to pick It Happened One Night, a 1934 romantic comedy, which won Best Picture and a slew of other Academy Awards. Have you seen this one, Brian? I never have. And actually, that was a little bit of a magician's reveal. Right there, because I was not expecting you to pick an old movie when you said, I've got a slate of Oscar movies that I need to see. I thought you meant 2021 Oscar movies. Oh, (laughs) 
No, historical. Uh, so perhaps I will pick one because I've seen basically no Oscar movies. Uh, Friends of the Pod buzzed on movies are always very thorough with their Oscar coverage, and they've got me interested lately in checking out some of those movies. So maybe next week I'll I'll pick a belated but current uh, Oscar film. Yeah, I'm interested. What I know about this film is that it swept the big five Oscars. Actor, actress, director, writer, and best picture. And the only other two movies to do that uh, were Silence of the Lambs and, like, one other one. I think it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, there we go. Perfect. We complete each other. (laughs) We have approximate knowledge of many things. And now, because you've listened to us, you do as well. Thank you once again for joining us here on the Goods of Film podcast. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.